0: A lot of what happened with my career is like I wasn't really good at something. And then so I had to like pivot and learn to adapt to what I was better at. So I started leaning towards like doing videos the way that I thought would be good. And then all of a
1: sudden I did like one and it led to another one. Das ist der Telekom Electronic Beats Podcast, der Podcast rund um Nachtleben und Clubkultur. Wir sprechen mit DJs,
0: Türstehern, Tänzern, Clubbetreibern und anderen Nachtmenschen.
1: Mein Name ist Gesine Kühne.
0: Und ich bin Jakob Töne.
1: Herzlich willkommen beim Electronic Beats Podcast. Welcome to the Telecom Electronic Beats podcast. My name is Gesine Krina, and today we have a very special episode again. So this is why I invited Derek Opperman to join in this conversation that we do in the beginning, you know, a bit of introduction to the person we're about to talk to. Um, For the last four years, Derek lived in Berlin and worked as the editor-in-chief for electronic beats. And by the end of last year, he decided to move back to California, which comes in handy because the interview you're about to hear was recorded in California. And that's why I'm very happy to say hi to you, Derek. How are you doing?
2: Uh, Hi, Gazina. Thanks for having me. I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm very well myself. I'm excited that you did this interview for the podcast because you're able to do it in California and you met up with Vincent Haycock. He's a director known for his vivid sensibility and he's loved by some influential names in music, fashion and commercials. Um, I would like to know a little bit more about him.
2: Sure, yeah. Uh, Vincent's a filmmaker and photographer um, who's famous for his commercial and music video work with international artists uh, like You 2 Paul McCartney, Florence Welch, Calvin Harris, Lana Del Rey, and Billie Eilish.
1: And Billie Eilish rings a bell because you actually talked to her earlier this year.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, As you know, Deutsche Telekom has teamed up with Billie Eilish to launch a new campaign called What We Do Next. That celebrates Gen Z tech positivity and demonstrates the power and potential of the youth to create a better future. Um, Vincent directed the promotional film for the campaign, and it features Billie Eilish in a cast of inspiring Gen Z influencers. It shows how young people are challenging negative perceptions around their use of technology and are using it to affect the things they believe in like campaigning for climate change, championing equality, creativity, and even cybersecurity.
1: A lot of interesting topics. I hope you talked a bit about Vincent's background as well.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, Vincent's a prolific music video director. Um, He grew up in California in the 80s and 90s in a town on the Central Coast, which is actually not too far from where I grew up, actually. Um, We talked a bit about his influences and his creative process. Uh, We also talked a bit about working during COVID-19 the steps the film industry needs to take to correct its systemic racial bias, and how Generation Z might just save us all.
1: Thanks, Derek, for um, stepping in once again to do this interview in California. If you want to find out more about Vincent Haycock, please check our show notes um, for further links. But now, let's enjoy the talk between Derek and Vincent Haycock.
2: Um, okay. So when I look at your work, I have the impression that you value moods and emotions. Um, it's been a real roller coaster of a year. Um, How are you feeling about it? Um, about the year or about,
0: uh, work or both combined? Well, let's start with the year and then we can get to work. Okay. Oh man. I mean, I think that, you know, this it's, that's such a, there's so many elements to it. I, you know, I'm really, um, anti sort of not, not surprised by, but anti the kind of current administration and, and how it's handled things, you know, and it's like, you know, I think that like um, social media and the kind of the way that people react to it is, you know, everything's kind of in this like hyperbole phase of, of the way the internet kind of reacts to things, you know, and it's, 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 it's interesting to kind of take a step back and look at things and kind of try and understand what's really going on. And I think for the first time, not the first time in our, history for the first time this generation is sort of used social media to really um, change and sort of express, express things and also enact change, really important change. And so for that, I've been really excited by it, you know, like as much as, um, you know, as much pain and, and kind of suffering that's going on, I think there's a lot of good things and a lot of beautiful things that are going to come out of it. So I've been trying to just stay focused and positive and supportive of, of hopefully what will be a better future sort of, a, or you know, or, or at least a more thoughtful future, you know, whether it's better or worse. I think at least people are becoming more aware. So I hope that all of this comes out in a, in a positive way. And, and for me personally, you know, it's, it's been probably the most trying year, like from projects being canceled left and right to um, seeing what, what my friends are going through, like my black and brown friends, like the the suffering and the kind of intense realization that we're all coming to of, of of what needs to be done. You know, it's been a really emotional year, I think. And obviously COVID and my own kids being quarantined and all this kind of crazy stuff, my family, everything. you know, I think that hopefully on the other end of all this is something better. And, um, I'd like to think so creative, both emotionally and creatively. You know, I think that we'll, um, you know well i I, you know i it's like it's it's a tricky thing because like i'm coming from a place of like i'm lucky you know like i like i made enough money before this like i had a few big jobs that happened right before covid so like we're surviving you know and i but i know a lot of people aren't so it's kind of like a hard thing like i've enjoyed the the break it's made me think about a lot of things i'm like trying to determine like what my next steps will be after this but at the same time trying to be sympathetic to people that um don't have it so lucky and don't have it you know um aren't in a position that can do this It's it's tricky you know i feel really mixed up about it um but hopefully positive and hopefully
2: like something beautiful comes out of it yeah i mean such a tumultuous time you know i feel like though that yeah it's like maybe those times also give like a potential for new beginnings in a way that's sort of chaos. I would hope so. I, I, I
0: mean, history, you know, shows that that's what kind of happens. Um, we'll see. I have a lot of different thoughts on that, but I think that like from a filmmaking standpoint, this has almost been a necessary flush in the way that adding, like on the commercial side, just kind of the way that, uh, um, the, the system works in the, in the process of, of, of how all this works. I think everybody's had to rethink it. And, I, and I hope that like the film industry in general and the, and the commercial industry and just
2: like the sort of, uh, What do you um, mean by that? Like what, how do you feel like, uh, it's going to affect that or what was the necessary change um, there? It says it's a, it's
0: the, speaking specifically to the commercial industry. Cause it, I, I would sort of maybe categorize the, uh, music video industry in with this but you know um seeing how uh covid and as at first it started with covid uh and then black lives matter on top of that i've seen just this real struggle and kind of uh breakdown in in what's going on in the commercial industry and and i think that anytime people are forced to finally do the right thing. Um, meaning like just, you know, with COVID, it was like, okay, we can't make commercials. And there was sort of this desperation and, and everybody, you know, um, everybody had to rethink how to do that kind of work, you know, um, budgets, the abuse that agencies put production companies and filmmakers through the clients and all, all, just all the different layers, had to, how to rethink kind of everything, you know? And and sure. I think in a time of rethinking, hopefully uh, you realize where the big mistakes are being made. And I, and I think that there's a lot of them, you know, and I've been thinking, feeling that way for a long time and kind of in my own way, um, trying to re- remove myself from that industry um, as much as I can. I, you know, I think it's a great industry, but I think that there's, it's, it's radically flawed. And then, you know, with, with black lives matters, it's like all of a sudden everybody's being forced to recognize their white privilege, whether they're a corporation or an individual, Um, and being forced to recognize how racist the industry is. so All of a sudden you're in this double thing where it's like, we can't actually produce commercials because of the restrictions of COVID. And if we do, what's the message saying and who are we hiring? And, you know, and, and I say this knowing that it directly affects me. Like I'm a white male that uh, is willing to, and, and, and is ready to give up some of my work for some other people that's necessary. But, you know, it, it just sort of, there's a really, you know, I see it across the board and it's like, I'm just interested on how, how we'll come out the other end of this. And if people will really do some work to change it. And I think you're only going to see change when people are really, really forced to do it. And this is like, in my 20 years of doing it, I've never seen any, I've never seen a time where people have been more forced to just make a significant change. And there's two factors. It's like a pandemic and, you know, identifying the racism in that's systemic in not only my industry, but lots of other industries. So it's a real time of reckoning. And I hope that something changes out of it, you know, um, and we don't go back to some sort of status quo in a couple months, or if there's a vaccine or people stop carrying on social media about black lives matter and we go back to some status quo. I don't, I don't think it will this time. I think that doesn't, I don't thing. think so either. You know? So I think we're, I think it's interesting. Like I'm, I'm really excited by, it, you know, And I, um, I can only sort of support and hope that there's a real, something really different happens afterwards, but we'll sure. see. Cool.
2: Yeah. Well, um, so you're from California, right? I yeah. think I looked it up you're from Carmel area,
0: yeah. Uh, well I was born in there's only one hospital where where, where I was born. It's yeah. in Carmel, but I was actually grew up in this little town called Pacific Grove. Oh yeah. It's right to it. Yeah. It's like yeah. a quaint little beach. I'm from town Santa here. Cruz, so oh, it matter. Yeah. There you go. Um, I mean I more or less grew up in Santa Cruz too because I surfed from a very young age. So I would like that coastline is like
2: my home and
0: of course history. from Big Sur, you know, I spent many years down there and Carmel and Pacific Grove and the whole the whole Bay Area.
2: how did growing up in california particularly that area i think is so specific also that like central coast like monterey bay area is like kind of such a specific vibe but like how did that influence you growing up and maybe how does that also maybe come out in your film and your work
0: yeah um i mean in the 80s in in that area before there was like a big college and there was just a big military base and um it was super (laughs) small town you know my like my high school was like I would say like majority white, but like a lot of Hispanic. And it was like a very, you know, it's like an agriculture city. And it was a very, it was interesting. It was, it was very lonely. It was a very small town back then, you know, So you had your little group of friends and you get into trouble in the forest and the beach. And luckily I found surfing because it was either like you found surfing or you became like into football or golf or um, you did drugs and did, And I got into trouble, you know. There really wasn't much to do as a kid there, so. um, But it was great, you know. I like I lived my entire childhood in nature, you know. It's like pre-internet, pre-cell phones, and we spent our, you know, like I had that like classic childhood where you're you're getting lost in the mountains and riding BMX bikes through, you know, the streets and being kind of a, a, you know. And I got into punk rock like super early on. Like I remember Operation Ivy or pre green day, uh, this band, this lookout records thing was like played at my high school. So, you know, I had like this like really great exposure to kind of like that early punk scene, the eighties punk scene in California. So I got into that like straight away, like at a really young age and that kind of saved me from falling into the trap of like small town. Like I left this, you know, I left town as soon as I could at like 16 when mm-hmm. I went up, went up north to San Francisco. So, um, you know, looking back, man, I lived in paradise. Like now it's like the most sought after place to live in all of California. You know, at the time though, it was like a little hippie town. that sure. Nobody really gave a shit about, you know, it was like a bunch of old, old people. And um, now it's pretty, it's pretty different. Definitely. Yeah. Silicon Valley is like really affected it. You know, it's like, a, it, well, I go back there. My mom still lives there. And I go back there and it's like, just like big mansions on the beach and all this stuff. And it's kind of, feels like a different
2: world now, but yeah, it's a little different. That's true in Santa Cruz as well up that way. Like it's all like a commuter town now, I think for, for San Jose. Right. Right. Exactly. But uh, what you said about the punk music, that's pretty interesting. So like you have like, kind of like surfing, but then also like punk as well. And like those two things kind of are also like kind of have a physicality to them. I think, I mean, when I think of punk music in the eighties and nineties, like it has that kind of like mosh pit dimension to it as well. Would you say that that kind of like, I mean, when I look at your work, I kind of see like a certain, almost like emotional brutality, you know? And I feel like maybe, is there a connection there? Like between this kinds of like, uh, like, yeah, uh, I mean, I would think so. You know, I, I was always sort of, you know, um, I always loved,
0: I think from a very early age, I was always into the sort of romantic punk songs, you know, like, Mm
2: -hmm. like, what's uh, an example? Well,
0: there's like a loneliness a lot. Like, I'm just thinking back to like, Operation Ivy. There's this lyric, uh, Operation Ivy is like, you know, like, if I think back at like the bands that I really liked, when I was like a kid, it was like a lot of a lot like, you know, the clash was a huge was huge influence on me but you know my dad also listened to a lot of like bob dylan and things like that so i was into this kind of like a lot of blues you know my dad like i got exposed to like like really good blues not just like your boilerplate like you know um uh blues like like you know from screaming jay hawkins to other kind of stuff and there was always this like loneliness and sort of sadness that came from that music and punk really expressed that too you know like When I moved up to San Francisco, I became friends with, you know, um, bands like rancid and, and, uh, the swinging others was another Mm -hmm. big San Francisco band, um, jawbreaker. And there was a loneliness to those songs that I always really liked, you know, like this sort of, you don't need anybody. You kind of just can be independent and do it yourself. And, um, You know, I remember hearing like Tim Armstrong's lyrics in Operation Ivy and always really connecting and then seeing them live at Gilman and stuff like I immediately was just drawn to that sort of strength in like your friends and strength in yourself and fuck everything else and kind of just do it yourself. And I think that that for sure, without a doubt, without a doubt led how I approached filmmaking because I just did it myself. You know, like I didn't, I didn't, I kind of dropped out of school really early and, and I, I always took that kind of, I still take that attitude and I still listen to that music sometimes, you know, even though I don't really listen to punk music very often. I go back to those old songs and they, they really remind me of like being 16 and, and um, not really caring when anybody speaks of you. you know?
2: <laughs> what about uh, surfing or like kind of like doing this stuff? Does that influence you, know, you
0: at all? I mean, I think that a lot of the, a lot of the, it's, you know, it's the same thing. Like surfing is a very isolated sport. You're alone and it's sort of you're by yourself. And I hated group sports. I love playing soccer, but man, I fucking hated group sports in high school. I was like so anti that stuff. Um, so I think it all sort of was connected, you know, Um, I was pretty athletic as a kid and I was quite a good surfer. Uh, and I still love it. You know, I don't surf as much now having kids and working stuff, but. I think, you know, I don't know. I have a, I have like a mixed bag with surfing because I think that the most people that surf are fucking assholes, (laughs) you know, like, I think, I think, I think surfers in general, I mean, you grew up in Santa Cruz, you know, like this, this this real, like masculine, it's super bro. It's like a really bro activity to me. Like, you know, I grew up in kind of a hippie town where you saw it a lot for sure. I mean, you know, um, but when you go to in Southern California and, and, and in Hawaii and these various places I've surfed around the world, a lot of that, like, the magic of surfing is gone because of, like, the testosterone and this mm-hmm. kind of toxic masculinity that's, that's in there, you know. And it's, like, predominantly white men that surf. And, and it's just like a mm-hmm. – it's, it's kind of like a weird sport where it's like you're in this peaceful environment and you're surfing and you're trying to catch a wave, which is such a weird thing. It's, like, part of nature. And then you got dudes just yelling at you for space and
2: trying to fight you and stuff. It and, um, yeah, wasn't, there was that movie in the eighties, right? Nazi surf punks must die. Yeah. 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 Um, just, they just I'm taken not, over now.
0: Exactly. I'm not so <laughs> fond of surfing anymore, to be honest. Like I yeah. kind of, I kind of hate the culture of it. I, I do it, but I do it very like rarely. And I try and avoid, um, the people that surround surfing as much as I can.
2: Sure. Um, so photo, photographically, I read that you were into Nan Golden, um, like when you were coming up and like, what about her work spoke to you? Is that true? Actually, you yeah, I say. Yeah, I mean, I was, I would say, I don't know where you read that, but I'm sure I said it because I love her. And yeah, um, I, I mean, was again in the, there. I could kind of see also a little bit of a, maybe a connection in some of her work to, to what you do as well.
0: <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I you know, I, I, I had an aunt that was an incredibly... Um, prolific graphic designer. Her, her and my uncle ran ran a school called Cranbrook and she's my dad's sister. And at 16, when I was sort of like kind of wanting to run away from home, not run away from like my mom, but like run away in the sense of like get out of my hometown and stuff, uh, she offered for me to come live with her for the summer between my junior and high school year. That's like nineteen ninety four or five or something like that. And I, uh, um, I went to her, her house. I, I, I had like known her kind of, you know, but she had never lived where I lived, So I'd only see her like at Christmas or something or, you know, or, um, one of the Jewish holidays we celebrate or something like, you know, I had two sides of my family. So I was kind of, I'd see them at like random sporadic times. And then all of a sudden I was living with her at this art college in Detroit called Cranbrook. It's a graduate school incredible school like one of the most beautiful campuses it's only a graduate program in a high school there's no undergrad so it's like a really specialized art school and um and uh there i was at like you know 15 years old and sitting around her huge library of books which was like an entire the entire school library and then their personal library their studio which was like every book you could ever imagine and i just like picked up she knew I was into punk. Like at that time, I already had like tattoos and stuff. Like I was kind of like a pretty rebel kid at 15. And when I came there, she was just trying to show me things that I might, uh, that I might like, you know? Sure. She, so she just gave me a Nan Golden book to look at. Cause it was like pictures of like New York punk rockers in New York, yeah. uh, you know, uh, prostitutes and transvestites and just parties. And, and, and I really liked that. And I got really, you know, really into like, the Robert Mapplethorpe, Patty Smith kind of stuff. And and it just sort of stuck out to me as like, here's an artist who just took pictures of like the world around her and, and, um, and documented her own life from her own like abuse and her own, uh, you know, uh, her friends and stuff. And I, I really got into that. And like Larry Clark and some of that, some of that kind of that same stuff, like kind of really um, kind of was the early influence in, in what I thought. Because, you know, at the same time, in the nineties you had like uh David LaChapelle taking these like really like glossy over the top photos. And I always kind of looked at that stuff and was like, wow, it's really kind of gross and weird. You know, like I didn't, I wasn't attracted to it at all. So I just kind of always like leaned over to that more sure. gritty stuff, I think. And I think that's directly tied to like my upbringing and, and being part of like punks.
2: Yeah. You know. Was being at that, that was an art school. Did that kind of influence you in wanting to go to art school? Cause you went to CCA, right? In yeah. In San Francisco. Yeah. Um, you actually started, yeah. you actually weren't originally a filmmaker. You were an art director or you did. Well, I, I, I first went to live with my aunt
0: at, at 15 years old this one summer and then I came back and finished high school and then I went to school and I, and I, I wanted to be a graphic designer like her, you know, cause that's all I really knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I went back another summer a, after I graduated high school for like a month with them or a couple months. And, um, so yeah, I was, I was super into graphic design. I, or I thought I was, and I, and I enjoyed it for a while, but when I went to school and I kind of like always in the back of my head wanted to be a filmmaker. I really just loved the idea of, of making stories, you know, but I didn't really know what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I I, uh, I went to school and then I quickly learned that like the discipline of those schools are pretty rigid, you know, like you, uh, if you go into the graphic design program, you kind of have to study graphic design, like meaning like type and form and all these, you know, mm-hmm. I, I started taking all these typography classes, which I really didn't give a fuck about typography like if i'm excuse my my language but i really just didn't care about like i love it when i see it when i see great design i i still love it and i still practice it but i just couldn't i didn't have the patience to do like an entire semester on on um, serif and sans serif fonts and stuff like that so i kind of i kind of started exploring motion graphics and film and stuff back then. And it really like contrasted with the curriculum of that school. And so I dropped out um, to pursue just like some jobs and other things that were going on.
2: Yeah. Wait, I read you like you were involved with juxtapose for a while. Is that, yeah, that was, that was a juxtapose magazine. The, the, yeah. With our yeah, magazine,
0: yeah. magazine. Yeah. I, well, because I knew how to do layout from working with my aunt, like cork express, this is like, yeah, like way back in the day. Yeah. (laughs) Um, there was this girl named Sadie that worked. That was like the, she she, laid, I was friends with her. This goes back to the punk scene. I was friends with these people from bands and stuff in San Francisco. And Sadie was like, don't you know how to do cork express? I was like, yeah. She's like, I'm leaving my job at a juxtapose. Do you want it? And I was like, Sure. I didn't really know. And it was like just a layout. And then it quickly turned into like, all of a sudden I'm doing the entire magazine by myself. And I was like, you know, next sharing an office with, sharing an office space with Jake Phelps, who the editor of Thrasher and and all the slap guys and everything. And, And I was just like thrown into the, you know, I skateboarded and was part of like part of that scene indirectly, just living in San Francisco and going and being part of the music scene. And then, and then suddenly I had a job there, but I was completely unqualified for it. But, you know, I I sort of like faked it until I made it, you know?
2: So, and how do you jump from, from doing that to like making films? You had like a time where you were doing some title work as I, I think like, um, it just sort of happened naturally. You know, it was like, it
0: there was no, I just like kind of started doing stuff. I was like doing layout, at that time motion graphics like after effects had just come out uh, my aunt and uncle did um when i was working with them the second summer we did the titles for fight club um it's amazing. My, amazing yeah scene. it was I just like that. a my uncle designed a lot of stuff for this company called propaganda and he did like, oh. their logo and all this stuff and and was like super tied into um Uh, Fincher's early work and and this guy named Jeffrey Plansker and and Mark Romanek. And he did like lots of graphic graphic design for them and lots of like um, visual effects stuff. Like he did Mark Romanek's uh, uh, Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson video scream. He did all like the the visual effects of everything exploding.
2: Propaganda was like a really big deal. Like in the back in the 80s, 90s wasn't it? Yeah. They were probably like the first big production company where they turned, um,
0: you know, where music videos turned into filmmakers and you know I mean David Fincher came from there and many many others you know um so i saw what they were doing and i was just like that's what i want to do cuz they were well, the first time i went out there and stayed with them they were doing like like layout for books and stuff right they were like um <clears throat> they were doing really traditional graphic design stuff and then in that year suddenly everybody kind of caught on to motion graphics and, and, and those early Macs were like a 84, 8,500 at Macintosh was able to handle after effects four and you could kind of animate type. Right. And so I just, I saved up money and I think my dad helped me buy, buy one of those, like the, those blue IMAX. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I started just doing that stuff on my own because I was kind of bored with graphic design. And then one thing led to another and, A year later, I was a creative director at this company called Digital Kitchen um, in Chicago. And so I had moved to LA for like nine months or something. And then all of a sudden, I was living in Chicago doing, again, kind of like faked it until I make it, you know, like I kind of knew some stuff, but I had, you know, I had like an inherent kind of design sense that that worked. Mm -hmm. And then they, they started like that year, man, we did so many title sequences like within a year or two, like. Um right when I got there, this great designer, Danny Yount, had just done six feet under the HBO show. Yeah. And he was a creative director there. And then I did a show called Nip Tuck, which was Ryan Murphy's like first big show. Mm-hmm. Uh I did like the title sequence for that. And and then we it just it was a mix of design and kind of concept and a little bit of directing. And it just kind of like it was such a good place to work because there was like 40 or 50 creatives work for that company they have three offices so each office would maybe have 10 15 really talented designers all like levels like i was 20 i think when i started it's crazy yeah and you know there would be guys who are 40 there'd be there'd be like creative directors that are 40 or even 50 there that have worked for mad agencies so there's this huge gamut of talent there and we just started like learning from each other and uh picking up cameras and shooting stuff and and I, I got really focused on like the live action side and kind of abandoned the visual effects side because I was sick of sitting at a computer for like 40 hours straight three days waiting for renders to happen. I would just, the, the EDC wasn't, wasn't working for me. Um, it was too much like labor. So I just kind of started drifting into live action, um, I wanted to do music videos and stuff. Cause so, so it was just like kind of a natural, like I just sort of went towards what I thought uh, was interesting. Yeah.
2: And what was your first music video? Like what was that, what was that first that like sort of moment where you switched from doing the title stuff to doing music videos? Yeah. Um, I mean, I made a lot of like really dumb stuff, you know, like I,
0: I made like, <clears throat> I take music and film stuff on my own and like, yeah. And, and filming on like VHS cameras. And, and, you know, I made a lot of skate videos. I made a lot of like surf videos where I'd edit and put titles in and stuff like, like, like where you were like doing VHS to VHS kind of dubbing, yeah. you know, where you're like, and then mini DVD to VHS. And I had like all kinds of systems where I was like capturing and recapturing stuff. And, um, you know, in that early era of like, uh, big brother magazine and stuff of like skate videos mixed with like weird shit. You just throw in there, you know, like, like quotes. So so I kind of like had done that for a while, but my first video was for a San Francisco band called, uh, black cat music. Who was a friend of mine. And funny enough, we sort of based it on like Nan golden photos. Uh, and this guy, um, Derek, uh his name's also Derek, he's a photographer, but he took photos of like San Francisco punk rockers and like Against the Wall and would just photograph them with like a flash. And we did a video where it was like that, where like the band played and we just like took all of our friends at this band called the Kit Kat Bar, the Cat Cat Club, I think. Oh Francisco. yeah, that's
2: the Yeah, not Kit Kat, but yeah, that's like cat club. Yeah. Cat Club, in, I think. Yeah. Summer, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, probably like this is like mid '90s ish or something, late '90s. No, no, sorry, I'm I'm so bad with dates. This is probably this is after I went to, I came back from Chicago. I think I don't know, maybe like 1999. I don't know. And we did a video where I just took like a a, a mini DV camera and like just photographed, like did like moving portraits of these people. And I wanted it to feel like a Nan Golden photo kind of, you know. And it was like everyone in San Francisco at the time that was like in that scene. So it was really fun. Cause it was just like this time capsule video to one of their songs was really not a good video, but was really kind of like, uh, the early, my early, um, kind of figuring out how to like work with people, you know, like, like finding these people off the streets and filming them. Like for me, it, it took, it happened over two nights and like the band played and I take people to the crowd and, since I kind of knew everybody in San Francisco knew that scene very well, it was really easy for me to do, but you know, like these were like, some of them were super famous, you know, like friends of mine, like they were in bands and some of them were just like drug addicts from the street. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it had, it had a, it was really like a, it was the The end product was horrible, but the process was really (laughs) like,
2: Oh, that's funny. that was my first video. Okay. And that's really interesting. I didn't realize you were a part of the, the punk scene in San Francisco at that time. Um, where was that, where was that centered around while you were there? Like, what was that mostly like, like that was late nineties. So was that mostly in like the Soma area and stuff like that or, and like the hate or. Well, yeah. Like, um, if you're
0: familiar with it, like, uh, uh, this guy, Omar Perez. Yeah. He was like, he was in black hat music. Actually. He was the bass player okay so omar omar ran ran like the clubs like 16 and right i'm trying to uh there was that really good one that would have like bands would just like show like nick cave showed up and played one night and all these like amazing i remember like being with nick cave and omar and a couple other friends like in the back of that of 16 or one of those one of the other clubs and just hanging out you know just like just like with Radiohead and 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 all these crazy bands that would come through the city and play, and there was such a good scene back then. And uh, you know, and I and I grew up with guys like you know, I knew like uh, Davey havoc from AFI was like a uh-huh. friend, and there was just like such a good energy there. You know, like all my all my like friends there, and and I, and I was you know I also worked at Temple Tattoo, which is like a tattoo shop in oakland which there was like a really big scene that was going on there and i mm-hmm. just a friend i was just like the guy who answered phones and occasionally would do a really shitty tattoo on someone but
2: I, i've known a few people who've done that in san francisco at other studios yeah. as well <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I, I played music there you know yeah. and we would just like I, it was just like a scene that was like you know it was so it was it was such a special time it was like right before the 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 dot-com boom happened and San Francisco just had like such an energy back then I, it's like non-existent like, there now, you know, like I go back there, uh, there's nowhere to go out and see music. It's like, it's completely different. Um, but yeah, like that time was super informative for me without a doubt, you know?
2: Totally. Um, so to get back to music videos though. Um, so like many great filmmakers have started out as music video directors. You talked about David Fincher, uh, why do you think that is That like that kind of good directors can kind of come out of this medium? And I have a second question, maybe it'll follow up to that, which is yeah. uh, what are the advantages of music video making uh, or of the form of music video making for you? Well, I mean,
0: you know, I think it's, it's the only place where art and commerce mixes mixes in a way that, that gives the director act uh, the creative freedom, right? Because, you can make a short film, but you got to find the funding. You can go out and make your own art project, but you got to completely do it on your own. Where videos provided that same kind of ideology, but there's some money behind it. So, you know, uh, you have a you have a big band that wants to do something creative, and if you see like the early and and there's no there's no products, so you're not really really restricted to. A brand identity. You know, you're not making a commercial for Apple where like you got to feature a phone. So everything's got to be based around this like this product. You're you're basing it. Your product is a band, which you know, if you're doing videos for um, for Jay Z, you're building a world around Jay Z. If you're doing videos for Radiohead, you're building a world around Radiohead. So you know, you look at you look at those early sort of um, pioneers and videos and they were doing incredible work. You know, you look at Jonathan Glazer or, or there's so many, obviously, you know, sure. like, um, and you look at the work they did and in it and, it and back then it meant a little more. I feel like, you know, like you could just make a really good music video and next thing you do, you're making a big feature film in a way. Um, and it, it just was like a, it's a, it's a place where you can experiment and find your voice. You know, I think, uh, it's either that or you write a script and you go to this like long road where you where you make a where you make your first movie you, you know and you look at um you, you look at someone like PT Anderson that just was like a complete savant and just made Boogie Nights you know with probably like no you, you know he did that one f- film before it but it's not like he did 400 music videos and then finally yeah, did sure. a film you know, His practice sort of came through maybe the craft of writing and studying film or something but you know that's a harder road to to go because you don't get all the onset practice you know so i think music videos are really great because they're experimental and if you're lucky enough to do videos where you're not just shooting a band like playing on stage you can actually really create like little mini films and and create things that uh that might tell a different story than than just a performance you know
2: Yeah. And how did you kind of come up on that style for yourself? Like, was that something you just like, how how did you, because I mean, if you look at like a lot of like music video directors, like, generally speaking, I think the majority of them tend to make work sort of like what you just described, which is like a band on a stage or something more literal, I think, based on on the song itself or the experience of viewing the music as opposed to like, yeah, like an encapsulated movie that could almost work outside of it being a music video. I mean,
0: there wasn't like a, for me personally, I think the era in which I started doing videos gravitated towards stories versus performances, just in general, like the, the, what the, what the want was from video commissioners or from bands was to do something that wasn't so traditional. You know, I was coming off the coattails of, you know, the Gondry, Spike Jones era videos, you know, sure. um, And suddenly, you know, you're. I'm in a generation where we're doing things just differently than than that. But for, I think you know, I think one thing we all often, I always remind myself is that a video is just a commercial for the band and the record label to sell stuff, right? Like at the end of the day, like there's no fooling that it's not an art project. Like we're still just, it's still just they're paying me to make a commercial for their music. Um. So you know, it's if you find the right bands that that want to advertise their band with something different than them rocking on stage, then it's like, yeah, well, that's the key to it. You know? Um, and, and I think for me, I just, I, I did, I did performance videos that are, that you'll never see. And I, my name's not on them and you could probably, if you really wanted to, you could go find them and they're horrible. Like I wasn't good at it. You know, like that's, and it, that's something that seems to be like as I get older and, and have to answer these questions and in interviews, um, <clears throat> a lot of what happened with my career is like, I wasn't really good at something. And then, so I had to like pivot and learn to adapt to what I was better at. I did some performance videos and I just, they just sucked. Like I didn't know how to do them right. Like I didn't, I wasn't, my heart wasn't in it. I couldn't figure out how to like shoot the band. Right. And they just would be really shitty. So I started gleaning towards like doing other kinds of stuff, you know, doing videos the way that I thought would be, good and you know it took probably like two years till it finally stuck and then all of a sudden I did like one and it led to another one and then that's kind of what I became known as I guess or like that's what I that's what I got asked to do was to come up with that kind of
2: stuff what's the creative process look like for coming up with like one of these um stories I mean like for instance like the the one you did for you too the song for someone I really like that with uh, Woody Harrelson I thought that was really incredible Like how, how do you come up with that kind of storyline or how does that, what does that look like when you're, you're kind of coming up with that?
0: Well, that, that's a recycled, that was a recycled idea from like, um, probably like three treatments prior. And I actually have to give credit to, uh, my friend, AG, who, (laughs) um, who kind of, we kind of wrote that, not exactly the idea, but we were going to co-direct a Johnny Cash video. Okay. Um. And we wrote this idea of like this, a prisoner going into prison and a prisoner coming out of prison. And, and there's sort of the cross section of their, um, the relationship between the young guy and the old guy. And um, then that video didn't get made uh, obviously. And and then I adopted the idea for U2 because it was the song kind of had the same similarities and what You 2 was like kind of asking for kind of connected to that. So then I, um, I rewrote that idea, but you know, it's just like listening to the lyrics, thinking about stories that you want to tell and kind of trying to find what would be emotionally kind of connected to that, you know? And and sometimes it just comes out of like, you're watching a movie and you see like one little scene or one little moment. You're like, Oh, that would be cool to do a video. That's just all about that moment. Cause videos can't really tell like a, such a big story, you know, they got to kind of be like, I think singular to like one thing, like they're not going to tell a long narrative. I've tried to do that where you like have like a complicated narrative and it just doesn't work, you know? So it has to be sort of be like this singular moment. And um, yes, like on you two, it just was like guy getting out of prison. We actually shot a whole second, um, a whole second part of that video where it was the kid going into prison with James Freshville, who's this Australian actor. He was in animal kingdom. He's a good friend of mine and we shot a whole like he's in it. He passes by Woody for like one second in the hallway, but there was a whole other narrative that it's a long story, but um, I was forced to cut out of it because the mm. band just wanted to focus on that one story, but maybe someday I'll release the, the second video. Um, um, yeah, but I don't know. You just, I, I just come up with them it, every time. To be honest, it's an impossible task. It's yeah. really, it, it's like, It never, it, sometimes it happens just like that. And sometimes it's, I've had tracks for bands like that. I would dying to do a video for like, like, you know, your favorite band and I just can't think of anything and I just pass because it's like too much pressure. So I don't know. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't.
2: Do you like often come up with like multiple story ideas that could fit a song and then kind of go from there? Or is it more like you just pitch one really strong, strong idea? I usually just, sometimes I'll have multiple ideas, but usually the first
0: idea I think of, I, I I end up just going with. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, I, man, if I, if I showed you my hard drive of un, um, unmade music video ideas, it's like (sighs) daunting even to me now, you know, like I've been doing this since 1999 and it's 2020. and, And it's like, there's thousands of ideas that are just like, um, that I really thought at the time were great, you know, like this is the best idea ever and they, nobody liked it. And so I've sort of taken the path of least resistance now where I just send in like a really quick, simple idea. And if they bite, I'll, I'll flesh it out afterwards. But I used to go really like robust and send two ideas or really spend a lot of time and energy on it. And now the industry is so fickle and so like, you know, really I don't want to say abusive, but kind of abusive, you know, with how they like, how many ideas they'll do, they'll take in on one track and all that kind of stuff. So I I don't really put much energy into it anymore. Once the video, once I know I'm doing the video, I put, I go full on, Mm -hmm. but in the pitching process, I kind of just like write in, like, here's my, here's, here's a quick idea of what I think the video will be. If you guys are digging it, yeah, let's keep working on it together, you
2: know? Cool. Um, how do you come upon like working with someone like Woody Harrelson for like a, for a music video? Is that like, I I mean, I'll be honest and say that I don't watch a whole lot of music videos these days. Um, but like, it seems interesting to me that there's like a lot, there seems to be maybe more of a crossover between like Hollywood and music videos Mm -hmm. in regards to actors and, and actresses. than there used to be, is that a true assessment or? Um, I think there's
0: always been a bit of that, you know, like, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I know that like in the eighties, there was some, you know, there was like music videos, like a Madonna video with, you know, um, yeah, sure. with like Sean Penn in it or something, you know, like there's always been this like celebrity element in, in music video here and there. They're definitely, you know, that same generation that I, that I was going to talking about before, like kind of my generation video, I feel like there started to be a lot more experimentation with narrative and characters. And you saw a lot of like, I can, you know, from, even just AG's, you know, AG did a a video for run the jewels that had a, um, God, blinking names, had some great actors in it. And, you know, and, and I I can think of like many, many, you know, like Christopher Walken and Spike Jones video. And, um, you know, I I think that it just started getting the, the, the craft and the quality of the videos became more attractive to actors. Um, and, it's, it's a fun experimentation, you know, like I just did a Leonard Cohen video with Isaac de Boncle, who's a f- incredible, uh, French actor, you know, who I never thought, even, even though I've had all these like great actors, like when I approached him to do the video, I was like, Oh man, what are the chances? And he was like, of course I like, I like, I, I'm a Leonard Cohen fan. I love your work. And he just, signed up to do it like without any question like was there and and gave his heart into it so i'm always surprised it happens to be honest still you know like i've had johnny depp in a video i've had uh ben Mendelssohn. i work really closely with florence and all these great actors i've been so like uh privileged to say yes that they say yes to it and i'm always surprised you know so woody harrelson specifically and that he's friend that i can't take any credit he's just friends of bono straight
2: up here. Maybe there was something like that there, but yeah, I mean, uh... yeah.
0: <laughs> they asked me who I wanted and I gave them like a list. They said, just send a list of yeah. your favorite five and then maybe five other ones that are kind of like offbeat. Yeah. And I sent a list that didn't have Woody Harrelson on it. Um, and they looked at it and, and then Bono, it was really strange. He just called me and was like, I'm at Woody Harrelson's house. Is it okay if I just ask him to do it? I'm here right now. And I was like, okay. And then like five seconds later, he sent me a text that said Woody's in. And it, that was it. And I would have never dreamed that he would have done it. You know, like and he was so incredible in it and like such a great
2: collaborator. But it was, you know, that was just luck. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in your work, um, you kind of touched on this a little bit before, but is there a certain attitude to life that you're trying to capture? I mean, I feel like there's this sort of stylistic continuity um, there that's, as I said before, there's a kind of this emotional intensity as well, but I'm wondering if if you feel like there's certain something behind your work that you're trying to convey. Um, it changes, you know, it changes like just cause I'm a human
0: being and I go through different periods of my own life. I think that like, you know, my work, like you're saying, I think it it's connected to like what I'm, what I'm feeling and what I want to like experiment with. I think in, you know, in recent years, I've been really trying to do videos like each video almost kind of differently. Um, But yeah, I think, I think I'm always attracted to, to videos that have, there's a, there's like a centered emotional integrity. You, Mm -hmm. I guess you'd say like whatever that is, if it's like joy or sadness or searching or some sort of, you know, theme thematic kind of emotion, I like to like kind of ground the video in that, you know, I guess you would say like, uh, whatever that constant if it's like, if it's a narrative, like something like the YouTube video, like he would, like that video was all about the buildup to him seeing his daughter. So it was about a man getting out of prison and the video and it was, everything was focused around this sort of, uh, the internal struggle and the pressure of like him being greeted by his daughter. He hasn't seen for a long time at the, at, once he gets out that gate, right? So everything was built around that, all the emotion, all the shots, everything, that long shot at the end, everything was just focused on that one moment. So I think, you know, like the emotions kind of come out of like, whatever the story is and, and the song, you know, like music is super emotional. Um, I'm usually attracted to songs that have like, something like that, you know, like, um, something, something like that in it. But then also, I think like my style, I just like, like going back to the Nan Golden thing. I don't like, stuff that feels too fake you know even though like some of my stuff i've done lately i've really been trying to do like maybe more um surreal stuff you know like the stuff i did with kelsey lou this foreign car video was like a big kind of pop video with like a lot like really incredible sort of fashion element to it and it was more like a kind of like a sexy pop video versus like kind of an, a narrative mm-hmm. um, and that was really fun to ex- experiment in as well but it's still there was like I, I think that i still was focusing on like what she was trying to convey with the song and the sexuality so there's probably still a kind of a gritty emotional element to it it's not too superficial you know but um i'm also always really interested in my like documentary and kind of street casting like all my all my videos are besides like the ones with celebrities it's usually all like street casted or casted like in a, in a very non-traditional way. So even the ones where there, there are a big actor in it, like, you know, in the Paul McCartney video, where there's Johnny Depp, the rest of the people playing blues in there were like street casted blues, people from the like we drove around, uh, natchez mississippi and places like all all up the the, what they call the blues belt or whatever and we found a lot of these people and paul mccartney was so generous he flew them all to la to do the scene with them because he wanted that office authenticity too so so you had a scene where you had paul mccartney and johnny depp playing the blues but everybody else in that was street casted like they were like legendary old blues people some of them one guy this guy Lil little poochie had never been on an airplane ever before he was like 70 years old And that was his first airplane ride ever in his whole life out of Mississippi to play with Paul McCartney. He was like over the moon.
2: I mean, that's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. So, you know, like that to me, like that video was a really important video for me because for so many reasons, but that moment of being able to street cast that guy and have that experience with him and, and then kind of talk to him after the experience and have a relationship with little Gucci that was all around this making this video to me, that's like the things that I'm always drawn to. So I think maybe that somehow shows up in my work because, um, that's just, I I liked, I liked that story of him getting on the plane and coming to play more than anything else about making the video. Yeah.
2: What were some of the other reasons why that's uh, an important video for you? Uh, well it's Paul McCartney. I mean, sure. Barring the
0: obvious (laughs) one. (laughs) Uh, which you know like i'm a huge fan of uh i'm i re- i'm actually a recent fan of the beatles i always liked the rolling stones more but like after my 20s into my like mid 20s i started to re- realize how much how beautiful um john lennon and paul mccartney's uh songs were you know kind of outside the beatles their solo work i actually like more mm-hmm. but um that video was retelling the story of john and paul's relationship you know it's like paul paul wrote that song he's this is his own words is that it was the first time he ever wrote like a love letter to John and it's called early days. And it's written about his early days with John Lennon and, and how much John Lennon's mother um, influenced him because his mother died at an early age and all this, like, it's a really intensely personal song to him. And, you know, he told me on the phone the entire history of him and John Lennon, like how they met all the details on this, like, three hour phone call I had with him. And that's what I wrote the video about was like a reflection of, we didn't want to tell the story of like two kids up in Liverpool. So he was like, so we said it in the fifties cause he was talking about how the blues really influenced their music. So we sort of did this parallel story in the South in 19, uh, the same year, 1960, they met in 19, uh, 1950s yeah something. i don't know i don't yeah. remember what year they met but we basically said it the same year and tried to like be period correct to the same era and and you know the opening scene is the how they met they met at like a fair kind of thing with fireworks going off there was like a celebration in liverpool we went we shot it in the south and john lennon was sitting on the back of a truck this like laurie parked with him sitting on the back playing guitar and paul mccartney walked up and like saw him playing guitar and like that's how that they actually met in real life so we we built that entire, like almost all the scenes are built to directly reflect the meaning of John and Paul. So, I mean, like what's more special than that? You know, I'm like retelling this like moment in history, getting the privilege to retell it by the guy who lived it. So to me, that was like, you know, an incredible um, experience.
2: Yeah. It sounds, it seems pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you decide to work with an artist or, how conversely, how do you reject projects as well? Like, is there something like that? Does it have to speak to you? Like, do you have to be into it or, or is it? Yeah, I think so. I mean,
0: it's funny. How do I, how do I decide to work with art? (laughs) You know, I think you're just fortunate enough to like get, maybe it's a loaded question. I wish, I wish it was just like, I get to sit in my room and like kind of think of all the artists I love and go like today I'm going to work with them. Yeah. Um, no, I mean it's it's all it's like, you know, it's luck. A lot of it's luck, you know, a lot of its relationships. Um I don't think I've ever gotten to decide to work with an artist like where it's like I'm just sitting in a in a vacuum kind of thinking of who I want to work with and then they magically appear. That's what happened a few times where I've like really made an effort to be like, I really want to work with this artist. Like Kelsey Lou, I I just I met her through Florence and I immediately was just like, holy shit, this, she's just incredible. And I pushed to work with her. And the first video we did together was, was more of me working to build a relationship, you know, versus like it coming to me from a record label. Um, because I really believed in her and the music, you know, so and that, and that, so that was me just sort of chasing that down. Um, the rest of it's just like been relate, you know, like I met Florence through Calvin Harris, you know, um, I did, I was doing all of Calvin Harris videos and then he did a song with her and I did that video with them. And, and we met on set for the first time and I did that video and she quite liked it and then asked me to do another video. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm doing, I did everything for her for years. So, you know, that's a, uh, that was just like luck and relationships and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's like one thing building on the other. Yeah, I and mean, I mean, I've rejected some artists that that I I not rejected, but like either like I said before, didn't have an idea, or the idea didn't work out, or the schedule wasn't right. You know, like, um, <clears throat> you know, probably like a regret that I that I have is like I got asked to participate in Beyonce's Lemonade, and like I was doing Florence's Odyssey, and I couldn't imagine doing. To multi-video seems like an extreme amount of work. Yeah, and also like I kind of had heard that Khalil had already done all of Lemonade, and then it like didn't work out. I'm I'm friends with with Malik, and he was sort of telling me that he shot some of the stuff, and there was like a lot of videos being made, and it just sounded like a a lot of work. But you know, looking back on it, would I have loved to been part of that and do something for Beyonce? I think she's amazing. Like, yeah, of course I would have, but. I didn't, so I didn't reject her, but like, sometimes that shit just doesn't work out.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, the odyssey, the thing, you know, your work with Florence was pretty incredible. I mean, that's like an entire, like feature length music video, basically. Yeah. I mean,
0: that's just fucking luck, man. Yeah. That whole thing. People ask me like, how did we do it or how do we plan? And it was like, I give Florence all the credit. Like she fought for it and wanted to do it. And, um, you know, we started off making one, a couple videos. I had the idea that they could continue that we like created the first video. What kind of man like we created such a big world for what was going on in that video and the other videos that were t- connected to it, like St. Jude. And, and, um, so we had like two chapters and, uh, we didn't, we thought that would be it, you know? Um, and then it just kept kind of going and she kept fighting for it and her management kept fighting for it. And at the end of it, you know, she was getting like Gucci to pay for it and stuff, you know, like the record label kind of abandoned it and stuff. So it was like, it, it was just like one of those, you know, but so it, was it, was
2: iterative, about- then. it was like something you made as you kind of like, were going along then. Was yeah. Supposed- there was yeah.
0: some, there was, there was a, there was a rough outline and kind of a plan, mm-hmm. but you know, again, like commercials or videos are commercials for, for an artist, you know? So as much as you might want to plan that, like they kept switching the singles and switching what would be released first. So suddenly you're trying to make a, a linear thing or sort of a narrative thing, but like, it has to exist in compartmented, um, you know, pieces that are good for how the record label wants to release singles, you know? So it was super complicated. Um, and without someone like Florence really being on my side and fighting for it and our relationship and our bond as it grew it was the only thing that sort of like allowed it to happen because I was committed to it. Like I had to turn down so much work that year because it was just like the schedule and the sort of, you know, the the, the the release dates and schedule of shooting that kind of almost took up my full year, you know, um, because there'd be just small gaps in between and not time, not enough time to go do a commercial and stuff. So it was hectic, you know, it was a weird, it was definitely like, I'm glad I did it, but I I don't think I, I mean, maybe I'd do it again, but it was really tough. Yeah.
2: So you've been saying like, you know, that music videos are commercials for, for songs, um, but you also direct commercials as well. Um, And I was wondering for you, like what is the biggest difference between directing a music video and a commercial?
0: Um, I mean, the idea generally comes from the ad agency for commercials, you know, like uh, it's very rare that they come to you and want you to create an idea for them. It's happened a few times or you're able to like sh- sculpt their idea or you're able to influence their idea, but you're never really, it's never really your idea. And I think that's the key to the the difference is that because the production and, all the same, all the same sort of rules apply. Like you never have enough money, you never have enough time. It's the production's tough. Um, you know, obviously, with commercials, you have a lot more money, but there's but your time and energy. Like I, I shoot my commercials and my music videos wildly different. I would say, you know, like on my music videos, it's almost like me and a small crew, and we go out and make this film any any means necessary. You know, and on commercials you have a lot bigger crew, you have a lot more restrictions, you can't sort of operate the same way. I try and infuse the same work ethic onto both, but it's just inherently different. So I think, you know, like commercials, even though I kind of approach it creatively in the same process, like it's still me and I still want to like make the same work and still put the same energy into it. You're kind of, you know, you're not doing your idea, you're doing someone else's idea. So inherently there's some restrictions there that that make it so that you can't Um, you can't necessarily like do it the same, you know, um, I I think that's really it, you know, like the, some commercials still have a lot of freedom and are great ideas and you can still bring a lot of like emotion and energy to it, but you're inherently and, and sort of understandably, like you go into it knowing that you're, you're working to, to, to make something for this product and you still want to make it good and still want to make it beautiful, but you know, it's just a different thing, you know? Sure.
2: But like, you can still kind of like imbue it with your sort of uh particular style or the style of, of the director. It still comes out, you know, even in the commercial work, I think. Yeah, for you
0: know? sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that's what you would hope is that you can still sort of, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I hope that's why, um you know, it doesn't always happen. Like you, sometimes you think you're being hired on a commercial because they want you, like they say that they, they like your aesthetic and they like the way you do things, but reality, they just want you to do what they want to do, you know, and kind of, Mm. and you're just like a facilitator, which is fine too because they're paying you and it's sort of like, it's a job, you know, I think that like, I think I've learned over the years that when you do a commercial, like you're working for them and you need to deliver what they need to deliver to the client and it's a job. And I think like taking the filmmaker kind of, I'm an artist element, out of it a little bit is important because it's kind of not necessary, you know, like just, you can use all the tools, you know, in your craft to like do it, but you're doing a, a job for them. And it's, it's important to deliver the job that like is effective for them as well. You know? So I think I kind of put on a slightly different brain when I'm approaching commercials. It doesn't always work, but I try to like, um, you know, be more, or a could be like a little bit more of a listener than like a, you know, than like the, the
2: narrator. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so how did it go when you were shooting the, uh, what we do next campaign for Deutsche Telekom and telecom electronic beats, um, with Billie Eilish? Um, I mean, it went pretty, it went pretty smooth to be honest. It was a, it was a
0: really, um, it was a really key shoot because, uh, just the production, the the production of it was quite tricky because all the people are real people. And I think going back to your previous question, how are they similar? You know, this commercial fit right into my wheelhouse a little bit because one, there's Billy, which I'm comfortable shooting like musicians and stuff and kind of working with them. And two, it was all real people. So like creating, creating things that were based out of their real life, you know, like their real, like who they are as influencers or as like politicians like Jenkins, and, you know, like really trying to recreate what, what they do in real life was something that I really like as a filmmaker, you know? So this was a commercial where I was actually able to kind of dig into what I do in my personal work. Um, But, you know, getting all those people in the same country and giving them each some level of authenticity so that it actually feels real to them was quite tricky, you know, Um, interviewed them all like ahead of time and spent a lot of time, uh, kind of researching and talking with them like what they do and, and what would represent their world the best. So that part of it was quite fun, you know, like finding them and kind of discovering who they are and, and, and making that work for the commercial was, was the challenge on this one. So, um, you know, um, and this was actually a commercial where I felt like that both the client and agency really wanted me to kind of do my thing they let me take the lead. and And with like research process and the getting to know each artist and kind of designing things around what they would do naturally. That's how I would do a music video if I was to approach it this way. So that, that was quite nice with this one, you know, like it really, it really allowed, it really allowed that like balance to exist.
2: How was it working with Billie Eilish? It was cool.
0: She's, she's incredible, you know, for her age, you know, it was, uh, we shot on her 18th birthday. Like she celebrated her birthday on set, which was kind oh, really? of funny. Or her birthday was maybe the next day or that day, I think or something. So I actually kind of felt bad for, her. Like, you know, on set working and she's like turning 18 that day. And I mean, it just shows how a hard worker she is and, and how focused she is. And, uh, but yeah, it was great. She was super chill and easy to work with. And uh, yeah. I realized that like the people that are really confident in themselves and the people that are like really know what they're doing and know what they want and are comfortable in themselves, they're always super easy to work with, you know? and she's one of them she's like it's just hard to imagine that she's only 18 cuz she seems like really intelligent for her age
2: yeah definitely she also has such you a know? presence too it's just like uh it's pretty remarkable
0: her presence in person and the way that she handles herself seems like she's like you know a 40 year old woman trapped in an 18 year old body you know she's like super super focused and super like seems like she's already like lived a whole life you know which is which is really refreshing i think
2: and what were your impressions of working with these Gen Z uh, influencers? And...
0: You know, they're cool. It's such a weird thing. Like I I always think I, I have a, when I hear the word influencer, I, I kind of, it has like a negative connotation to me in a weird way, you know? Cause it's like, there's always so much baggage with, with, with what an influencer is, but the focus of this commercial was to, to, to actually show the opposite of that. Right. was to show that like, the internet or an influencer quote unquote role is in educating older generations or people who aren't connected to these ideas. And, you know, that's what the commercial was really, was really um, celebrating and sort of focused on. So I really loved it, you know, like finding, you know, connecting with someone like Jen who's like the youngest person on the United Nations, like this, this youth element of the United Nations, you know, and she, So you like, you look at who she is and how she's using social media at such a young age and her voice and how important it is. And to me, like, regardless of social media, however, however she uses it, like that's a, she was incredible to like talk to, you know, like here's this like 18 year old girl who, who has organized and done more than I'll ever do in my whole life, you know? And like she uses social media to do that. So that to me, like kind of being again, like going back to what I was saying about little Poochie being flown in on the airplane to meet Paul McCartney and like how that was my favorite part of that film, even though you don't see it on the camera, like hearing Jan story and working with her and like meeting her and, and, getting to know like that that story exists to me was like one of my favorite parts of doing the commercial because of the kind of documentary or investigation or learning that goes into it, you know? So working with the influencers were really cool in that sense, you know, of, of of just learning from them, you know?
2: Um, It's kind of remarkable. It really seems like the way that the Gen Z uses the internet is pretty different than other generations like millennial or Gen X yeah boomer if you will um but yeah it really seems like they're using it more to or for almost for like so like political and social social ends
0: Um, yeah and and it's kind of cool to just have a direct like no filter from their from like a voice to their opinion like the power of of social media and the internet is unmistakably you know in like the most powerful thing right now you know you there's not a more powerful tool, I don't think, than the internet. So, you know, when you see someone who's young and focused and considerate really being able to, like, get their voice heard, you know, they can do, you know, you can kind of cha- change the world. I know that sounds corny, but there's people literally doing it right now, you know. Um, so I think there should be more focus on it, you know. Like, I think I think it's something that is... I think we all know it's happening and we're all realize it, but it's kind of hard to pinpoint really what's going on, you know? Yeah. Right. We're, we're living in it. I think like 30 years from now or 50 years from now, you can look back and you'd be able to see it all. But right now we're kind of in it and it's kind of hard to like know exactly what's going on, but I'm quite, I'm quite a, a fan of it and interested in it, you know?
2: Yeah, for sure. Okay. So lastly, um, I have a few Questions related to like what you've been doing in quarantine. Um, I was reading like a listicle that you had done a few months back where you were talking about some films that you'd been watching uh, by Palos Sorrentino and Vendors. And um, I mean, I thought that was fantastic. And I was wondering, what are you watching these days? Like, is there anything that you've, you've really liked that you've been. What am I watching?
0: Um, you know, I've actually been, I, I'm, I'm finally, I'm doing a final draft on this film that I've been trying to finish. Um, we're hoping to shoot this, this next year. And so to be honest, since I, since I wrote that thing, I ha- really haven't been watching much. I've been, I've chose to focus on like reading and writing a little more. Uh, mm-hmm. and I've been limiting, I put like a, a, a a lock feature on my phone. So I only get 30 minutes of Instagram a day and I only get like, Like I've limited like my, my phone intake with like alarms and reminders so that I don't sit on my phone all day. So I've actually been like purposely trying to like not have anything influence me at the moment.
2: Okay. What about reading though? I mean, you said you were reading like,
0: yeah, uh, I've been reading, you know, uh, well, I mean, let's see, have I watched anything I really loved? It'll come to me in a second. I have watched some stuff recently. I've been going back and watching some old Criterion things. So, um, I'm reading a a, a poet called Denez Smith. I'm reading a couple of his books. One's called "Don't Call Us Dead," uh, which is really great. Um, and I've been reading. Uh, God, man, that's it that I can think of right now. I really haven't. I've been I've been kind of doing the opposite, where I'm just like not taking in anything and letting my brain have a, a little bit of a break. Sure, sure. Oh, you know what I watch? You know what I watched is just like because of where I am. I watched uh this this kind of goofy show called Yellowstone, which is because I'm in Montana.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And it's with Kevin Costner and he's like a rancher and he's like it's like a it's like a family drama around like ranching and, and capitalism and whatever. It's, uh-huh. kinda, it's but it's it's been it was my family was watching it, my dad was watching it and stuff, and so I we we kinda got into it for a minute, but
2: It seems a little different maybe than,
0: uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. But sometimes you need, sometimes you need that. You need to like escape into, into just like a good drama, you know, or something. I don't know. How about
2: you? What have you been reading? Uh, actually right now I'm reading Vineland by Thomas Pynchon. You read that before? No, I haven't. It's really good. It's, uh, it's all about like, uh, it's kind of set in Mendocino County up there Uh and it's, It's pretty complicated. You know, it's like one of these Thomas Pynchon kind of conspiracy theory kind of books, but it's really good. And it captures kind of like the mood of um, Northern California in the 80s, like right after Reagan was elected and particularly how that was sort of about like the betrayal of the counterculture of the sixties.
0: Wow.
2: Yeah. It's really good. It's like a lesser book in his canon, but it's nice. That's cool. All right, man. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, thank you. This has been awesome. It's uh, really nice talking with you. Yeah, likewise.
1: So that was the interview between Derek and Vincent Haycock. I'm very happy that we have Derek on the West Coast to step in for interviews like that. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. And usually we're looking forward to your feedback um, on this episode or any other episode you can text us via instagram or leave a review on apple don't forget to check out vincent haycock's latest work with deutsche Telekom and billy eilish i'll leave you every information in the show notes until then stay safe and hear you soon Das war der Telekom Electronic Beats Podcast. Abonniert den Podcast bei Apple, Soundcloud, Spotify oder Deezer. Wir sehen uns im Club. Bis dann.